Thank you for your prayers for Yvonne and myself during this time of our absence. And I am delighted to be back in the pulpit and see you in the pew. We have a challenging lesson this morning for dads and for sons and daughters, motivating children with encouragement. From Colossians 3.21 and Ephesians 6.4. Now I have printed in the PowerPoint the King James Version, and I'll read those once again, Colossians 3.21. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Ephesians 6, 4, and you fathers provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. There may be some difficult things to make application of in our lesson today, but I would remind you that God's grace is sufficient, and we trust in that grace as we seek to understand what His Word says. After our introduction, we'll consider defining this problem of provoking. What does it mean to provoke a child to anger? Or a son or daughter, we probably should say. What is the cause of the problem? What are some characteristics of a provoker? Are you a provoker this morning? And then the solution to the problem as given to us in Ephesians 6. Some time ago, a friend of mine serving in the Navigator Ministry sent me the testimony of an Air Force reconnaissance pilot named Dave. He was one of the best and usually flew lead in his squadron. They flew very fast jets armed only with cameras. When he finished with the Air Force, he went into the Delta training program and became a co-pilot on his very first flight where he was actually piloting the plane It was a foggy morning, taking off out of Atlanta, and when he got the nose wheel off the ground, one of the two engines quit. He had faced that situation in a simulator before, and 11 times out of 12, he had crashed the plane. But on that particular day, he did the right thing, which was precisely against your natural inclinations, and he saved the flight. He became, not in his words, but uh, we would say a hero, and he received letters from the president of Delta, from many of the passengers, and he got calls from his old Air Force buddies. But then a few days later, his dad came to visit. His dad was a retired Air Force fighter pilot. When his dad heard the story, he jokingly said, well, if you hadn't had your foot on the brake, that wouldn't have happened. Dave tells the story with tears because all he wanted to hear his dad say was, son, you did a good job. But his dad probably was not in the habit of giving encouragement. And he probably failed to understand the importance of encouragement to a son or daughter no matter what age. And considering the matter of provoking sons and daughters to anger, we want to begin with a very simple question. It has an easy answer, but it's an important question. Uh, Much of this information would not be new, new to you, but nevertheless important, so we want to reconsider some of the things we've talked about on some occasions before. What causes most people to get angry most of the time? 
I think you would agree with me that the simple answer is not getting my own way. If I don't get my way, then I don't feel too good down inside and I have the opportunity to respond. Now, some people may be blow-uppers and some people may be clam-uppers. The blow-uppers get the heart attacks, the clam-uppers get the ulcers. But we want to take a look at uh, the anger chart and see how this thing goes. Now, when we're looking at individual behavior, certainly we could not suggest that everything we do will fit into neat little boxes in a uniform orderly pattern. But when we look at human behavior in the aggregate, then we see that there are some tendencies, there are some inclinations that would indicate where things are going. And that's what we want to do this morning. Demanding my own way. Now, I don't demand my own way outwardly, but inside, if I really get committed to my way and then I don't get my way, I may become angry. There's anger, but anger is always going somewhere. That's the reason God tells us not to let the sun go down on our anger. And it may be leading to resentment or possibly a grudge or exasperation or frustration or all kinds of things that we might put on our chart. But to simplify things, if I'm becoming angry because of what a person is saying or doing or their attitude, and that's going over and over again in a cycle, in two months, in two years, it may drop down into bitterness. And bitterness is a dangerous thing, according to Scripture. Don't let any bitter root grow up in you to cause trouble and defile many. Again, I may be able to cover up that bitterness in some ways, but if it's in there, in my heart, and there is a lack of forgiveness, uh, then Satan is going to be able to use that forgiveness. It's still going somewhere. I begin to feel sorry for myself. Uh, there may be doubt that anything is ever going to change. Sometimes that's true in the home or in the marriage, and that brings discouragement, and then it moves right down to spiritual depression. We have clinical depression, we have all kinds of depression, but this morning I'm talking about spiritual depression. Much depression, probably most, is spiritual in origin. Now sometimes I get hurt, and it's pretty close to anger, because I just didn't get my way. I'm not saying that a person can't be hurt. I think Christ was suffering grief when Lazarus died, but I'm saying be careful. If my feelings are hurt, it may be because things didn't go the way that I wanted them to go. Now, what if my way is the right way? What if my way is the correct way, the biblical way, and I am sure about that? Well, it may be a good desire that you have, but don't get married up to that desire because if you do bad things could happen, namely unrighteous anger. And Lou Priola, who was with us this summer, refers to unrighteous, unrighteous anger as God's built-in alarm system 
to let us know when we desire something too much. Let me give an example. Suppose a father would like to see at a certain time, 8 o'clock p.m., the family come in an orderly fashion into the living room. All electronic devices would be in the resting mode, the fax machine, the telephones, uh, all the texting and everything else. And everyone would take their seats, and all Dad would have to do is find his favorite chair and sit down and start preaching for the family devotional time. Everyone is eagerly awaiting family worship. Is that a good desire? I would say that is absolutely a good desire. It's a worthy desire. It's an outstanding desire. But if a desire degenerates into a demand, it can easily be distorted into something that is negative. Now, we know that Abraham was commended by God for commanding his household that they should keep the way of the Lord. That's from Genesis 18:19. But here's the key, dads. Even when we know that we have a grip on the right thing, we not only have to do the right thing, we have to do it in the right spirit, the right attitude of heart. And sometimes things come along that just upset the family schedule, whether it be Sunday morning or Monday evening for the family worship time. But we can't get upset when people don't see things our way or when we don't get our way. Think of all the examples in Scripture. Abraham wanted Ishmael to be the promised son. Moses wanted the people to behave themselves, stop worshiping idols, and follow God so he didn't have to get so angry and be kept out of the promised land. Joseph, you remember in our study of Genesis, had some problems with his brothers. He didn't want to be sold into slavery. Daniel didn't want to be carried off into captivity, I'm quite sure. And Jeremiah didn't want to be forced by Johanan to go down to Egypt after God had told them not to go to Egypt. Paul and Silas didn't want to be beaten and put into prison. And then there was Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was not right for him to be crucified, the innocent man, worst crime that was ever committed. And yet, he was willing to do things the Father's way. Sometimes we just don't get our way. Ahithophel was a wise old counselor to King David. His advice was considered to be an oracle of God. But the time came when he didn't get his way. He was also a grandfather, the grandfather of one Bathsheba. And when he found out what David did to his granddaughter and her husband, he was hot about it. And he was looking for an opportunity for revenge. And Absalom gave him a good opportunity in his rebellion. So Ahithophel went over to be Absalom's counselor and advised him on the best way to eliminate his own dad, the king. Hushai, the archite, also went back to Absalom as a spy for King David. Hushai gave some opposing counsel. Absalom followed Hushai's counsel instead of Ahithophel's counsel. 
What do you think happened next? 2 Samuel 17, 23. Now Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed. When he saw his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey, arose and went to his house, to his city, and set his house in order, and strangled himself. Thus he died and was buried in the grave of his father. I'd call that spiritual depression. There's not getting your way taken to the full extent. Elijah was God's prophet. He went up against 450 prophets of Baal, and he won the contest, calling fire down from heaven on the sacrifice. Then he prayed, and rain came after a three-and-a-half-year drought. He was so excited that he girded up his loins and outran Ahab's chariot back to Jezreel. He was expecting a national revival, I believe, but what he got was a death warrant from Queen Jezebel. Filled with fear, he ran into the wilderness past Beersheba. 1 Kings 19, verse 4. But he, Elijah himself, went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die, and said, It is enough now, Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. Then there was another one of God's prophets, Jonah, a reluctant prophet. He disobeyed God, but he repented after a three-day underwater sabbatical that God gave him to think about things. God forgave him and sent him to Nineveh to preach. Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Amazingly, the king and the people of Nineveh listened to the message and repented. And what do you think Jonah did? He got mad because God wouldn't scrap the place like he said he was going to. Then said the Lord to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry? That's a good question. Because God knew that about a thousand years later, the Holy Spirit was going to inspire James to write about anger. James 1.19 but let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Now the word that is used for Jonah's anger is kara. It's a primitive root meaning to glow or to grow warm, figurative to blaze up in anger. How do you think Jonah answered God's question? Verse 9. And Jonah said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And that was right after God had withered Jonah's gourd vine that was giving him shade from the scorching heat. Here's another guy who hit rock bottom on the spiritual depression scale because he didn't get his way. And we look at especially Jonah and we say, why that is foolish. Well, we have to be careful and look inside in our own hearts. Defining the problem of provoking. Colossians 3.21 Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. In Colossians, the word anger is not in the Greek text. Then why is it added to the King James? Well, in the Greek language, there is one word that covers provoked, to anger. It takes us two words. 
but the word erethenzo means to excite and stimulate to anger. So that's the reason in the English Standard Version it just says, Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Discouraged, ethemeo, means to lose heart or become dispirited. That's the reason God tells dads to have their hearts turn toward their sons and daughters and sons and daughters' hearts to turn toward them. Because if you lose a child's heart, it's going to be very difficult to guide that child in the right way and to keep them from becoming exasperated in the process. Now, in the Ephesians passage, it says, Do not provoke them to wrath. Paragenzo is the verb. It comes from para, P-A-R-A, meaning with or beside, and orgizo, meaning to anger or to irritate. Paragizmos, the noun, means that one is so angry he is beside himself. He's really angry. In Ephesians 4.26, we are told, Be ye angry and sin not. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, you may have reason to be upset about something, but don't have a fit. Channel that to something positive. Orge is not necessarily sinful, but when it turns to peror or gizmos, then it becomes sinful. How can you know when it's turning? Jay Adams gives us two ways to determine when that initial response is turning into unrighteous anger. First, he says, when the emotion of orge is directed toward others in order to hurt them or manifests itself in uncontrolled outbursts, it becomes sinful. Second, when it's turned inward into oneself in bitterness and resentment, it becomes sinful. In either case, the emotion of orge has to be directed toward a solution. And children have to be trained and taught that when they don't get their way, you can't have unrighteous anger. You can't blow up or just clam up and carry a grudge. You've got to deal with that. There's got to be forgiveness. You've got to direct that emotion toward a solution to the problem. It's something that we just learn unconsciously in our homes, according to the spirit of the home. Now, why in the world would a young person in a Christian home become exasperated, become angry, provoked to anger, filled with rage, sometimes so that they would be beside themselves? Well, there are plenty of erroneous answers given to this question of provoking a child to wrath, I believe. I've heard this interpreted in a variety of ways, usually slanted toward the one who thought they were receiving the action of being provoked. I've heard young men and young ladies suggest that the cause of their wrath toward their father or mother was that either one of them or both had thwarted their effort to get their desires in some way or had rejected their own plans to self-destruct their own lives. Or I've heard that young people become angry because they are deprived of something, like a girlfriend or a spend-the-night party. I don't think that's what this verse is talking about. 
I think uh, most of those responses would be a case of the strong-willed got-to-haves on the part of the offended party. I've even heard folks say that if you discipline a child, they will become angry. I don't believe that. John R. Rice tells the story of Admiral George Dewey, Dewey, hero of the Spanish-American War. He was an unprincipled bully when he was a boy. The school he attended near Montpelier, Vermont, had a reputation for rebellion, and Dewey was the ringleader. Well, a young man out of college came to be the new headmaster, and they had worn out plenty of headmasters, but this was Mr. Z.K. Pangburn, who later was an officer in the Civil War, and when he came to the school, he decided he was going to change things. So when he got there, Dewey was up in a tree throwing rocks at some of the younger children, and he said, son, come down out of that tree. And Dewey said, you go to blazes. So he knew from his answer that he was going to be in for a challenge. He got himself a rawhide strap and a couple of strong hickory limbs, and he put them in the firebox in the schoolroom. And when the uh, students came in, Dewey marched right up to the desk along with some of his buddies and said, teacher, we're going to give you the best licking you ever had. Well, Pangburn grabbed the rawhide strap and got a good swat on him. And then the other guys started coming at him and he got the hickory limb and he got on them pretty good. And then he gave Dewey a real good spanking. And here's what Admiral Dewey had to say later. They became warm friends after that. Dewey recently said to the major, I shall never cease to be grateful to you. You made a man of me, but for the thrashing you gave me, I would probably be a state prisoner. Well, I'm not suggesting that that is the way that we handle the rod of correction. Uh, Certainly the Bible gives us some guidelines for that. But I'm just saying where the uh, Scripture says, if you don't use the rod, then it means you hate the child in Proverbs. God is not kidding about that. I think it would be more accurate to say that what exasperates children is the spirit of what takes place in the home. What's dad's spirit when he's applying the rod of correction or any other reproof that there may be? Especially the spirit of the marriage, the atmosphere of the home, and the possession of the young person's heart. That's what I believe will determine their response to not getting their own way. We do know that when a young child gets his or her own way, that's about the worst thing that can happen to them. But how about a teenager? A teenager can ruin his or her life by demanding his own way. What can dad do? None of us dads would want to exasperate our children or our grandchildren. Well, he can follow the Scripture and do what it says. Scripture does not contradict itself. God is not going to tell parents to chasten their children on the one hand when chastening is going to provoke them to anger. No, we dads have to do the right thing, but we also have to do it in the right spirit. Now, we go to part C here, the causes of the problem, the provoking of wrath problem. In my opinion, a major cause of provoking children to wrath would be a father 
who has an angry spirit, or to a lesser degree, a mother who has an angry spirit, or to a greater degree, both mother and father who have an angry spirit and make an open display of it in the home. According to some commentators, the word fathers in Colossians 3.21 could be translated parents as it is in Hebrews 11.23, talking about Moses' parents. Provoke not your children is a commandment to parents. Matthew Henry observes that the bad temper and example of imprudent parents often prove a great hindrance to their children and a stumbling block in their way. That wouldn't be right for a young person to come back to parents and be giving them a reproof, but certainly we can pray that the Lord would enable us all to see the condition of our hearts. If Dad sets an example of cynicism and negativism and sarcasm that usually accompanies an angry spirit, you can be certain that children will be adversely affected. Now, can it be substantiated from Scripture that a major cause of exasperation in children would be an angry spirit or an exasperated spirit in their father? Well, I think it could be. We'll look at some scriptures. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Dad is a teacher. Dad is a discipler. Mom and dad are teaching every day what marriage is all about and how the home life is to be conducted. Now, if a child goes to school, he has one teacher up front giving the lecture, but he has many other teachers in his peers. And be careful because peers may be committed to their own way. And it's easy to learn an exasperated response from peers. Another verse, Proverbs 22, 24. Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. Now, if the man with the angry spirit is your dad, young people then you really need to cry out to the Lord. And I believe that the Lord will hear your cry. God doesn't make any mistakes about uh, which children get which parents. 1 Corinthians 15.33, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Anger certainly does not promote the cause of meekness. One of the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek. Proverbs 13.20, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. What kind of harm will he suffer? We'll take a look at some things. Now, there's certainly other causes of exasperation in children, and we want to take a look at some of those before we examine uh, Dad's situation a little bit more closely. One would be lack of training in godliness. A child has to be trained to be honorable, to be meek, the opposite of angry, to be respectful, obedient, honest, and disciplined. He has to be trained to develop the fruit of the Spirit in his life. And at some point, he has to understand that he'll never really have the fruit of the Spirit unless the Spirit is in his life. He will need Christ and Christ's Spirit. Here's a little book that's been an encouragement to me for a long number of years, The Children for Christ by Andrew Murray. He says, The greatest danger to Christ's church is not infidelity or superstition. 
It is the spirit of worldliness in the homes of our Christian people, sacrificing the children to ambition or society, to the riches or friendships of the world. Were every home truly one for Christ, a training school for His service, we should find the secret of spiritual strength. Well, is my home a training school for godliness? I hope that it would be. A lack of training to accept responsibility. Uh, Even the world trains many young people, many of their young people, to accept responsibility. But a lot of times teenagers want to say, you want to treat me like a baby. You just don't want me to grow up. You want me to be an exact copy of you. You don't want me to have any ideas of my own. Now, typically, when you hear those kinds of things, that means a parent has refused to allow a child to go somewhere and participate in some activity that the parent knows is going to promote or encourage wrong thinking or something worse. Now, the key is to train the child not only to trust his mom and dad in their judgment, but also to make mature judgments themselves about questionable activities. Do you remember this little study guide on how to measure questionables? I have some more of those with me this morning. If you don't have one, uh, you need to let me give you one of those because a young person can go right down the Scripture if that person, young person is a Christian and he can find out whether or not this would be pleasing to God to participate in whatever activity might be in question. Number three, neglect. King David, 1 Kings chapter 1. He had another son named Adonijah. We don't hear too much about him, but he, like his brother Absalom, tried to take over the kingdom. Well, here's the commentary. His father, David, never crossed him at any time by asking, why have you done so? He was also a very handsome man, born after Absalom. One translation has displeased. I can't conceive of anybody saying that about my dad, that he never displeased me at any time. That would be about the craziest statement anybody could ever make. But here's David, who neglected to do what he ought to do. Now, negligence is a matter of competing priorities. Other things, career, materialism, Leisure time, sports, hobbies, a lot of things get in the way. But I don't think our dads would have that problem, would we? There might be another strategy that the enemy would take for us. And that might be to have some goals that might be pretty good, especially in the eyes of the world, but they would not be the very best goals. Ted Tripp, in his book, Shepherding a Child's Heart, identifies some of these goals. And here's what happens. Young people are pretty sharp. And when they can identify that mom and dad have some goals that might just boost their ego a little bit, and those goals are not being reached, and dad becomes exasperated because he's not getting his way on these goals, they can understand that something is wrong there. Well, here would be some of the goals. Some biblical goals, according to Ted Tripp. Developing special skills. Sportsmanship, poise, 
uh, friendship, integrity, all those things are good. But what is the purpose for which those things are being developed? Psychological adjustment. Parents promote the latest pop psychology tailored to insecure moms and dads. They tell us to build self-esteem in our children. Did you ever notice there are not too many books to help children produce esteem in others, to help children esteem other people? Saved children, just to get the child to make a profession of faith. My child's in the kingdom now. He prayed the prayer. Well, a child needs to understand that the goal is not just going to heaven. The goal is holiness. And that requires much more than just praying a prayer. Family worship time. As valuable as family worship is, it's no substitute for true spirituality. In family living and family values, there's no connection between the family worship routine and real life. Well-behaved children. That's a good thing. But well-behaved children is not a worthy goal. Perhaps having obedient children. If your goal is well-behaved children, you're open to hundreds of temptations to expediency. Now, if any of those goals are taking first place instead of secondary places, then we're in danger of producing some Pharisees because they were pretty good on the outward appearance, but nothing was going on in the heart. If nothing's going on in the child's heart, he's probably going to be exasperated when you seek to press him according to the way of Scripture. So it's a good idea to begin early. Now, we don't give up the pressing, but we've got to do it with a good spirit, and we'll look at some possibilities here. What would be an overarching goal for what we do with sons and daughters? I'll give you a three-part goal. To know God, to understand His ways, and to please Him in all that we think, say, or do. That's the only way that a child is going to have a happy life, is if you have a holy life. And if you don't get all those things the world says that you ought to have, you will be exasperated. No doubt about it. There are a number of examples in scriptures of dads guilty of neglect. Isaac, Jacob, Eli, Samuel, David. Discouragement. A very effective weapon along with doubt. If a little boy says, Dad, I think I'd like to become an astronaut. And Dad says, an astronaut? That's the craziest idea I ever heard. You can never be an astronaut. That brings discouragement. His dad could have said, you know, I think you'd be a great astronaut. With your diligence and ability to work hard and big thinking, you'll probably be the first astronaut to set foot on Mars. What the child doesn't need is to be getting into the space shuttle at that point. He needs a word of encouragement. Favoritism. You know the disastrous account of Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac had Esau as his favorite. Rebekah had Jacob. And then it looked like Jacob learned his lesson, but, oh no, later on, Jacob had his favorite, Joseph. And you remember all the problems that that brought in the family. So, children have to be protected in the right areas 
Overprotection in the wrong areas may bring exasperation. If a child is pampered and coddled so that he can't ever go out and do anything or uh, participate in anything, he or she may become bitter. But the key is parents have to figure out what is going to promote wrong thinking and wrong activities because we don't want to be involved with that. Wrong thinking usually goes hand in hand with some of the things on our list here. Children should be protected from wrong thinking and wrong activities. And here is our list. Parental weakness and failure, arguing, bickering, pouting, carrying a grudge. False ideas regarding love, Hollywood stuff. Love is just a feeling, and when the feeling's gone, the relationship is ended. What a gross uh, error, according to Scripture. The world's entertainment, TV, videos, movies, magazines, books, everything that the world has to offer to entice young people. We even have young people's fiction now to entice the hearts of young people. Uh, Satan is a pretty good strategist. We have to be careful. Relatives who do not share your values. Idolizing friends and popularity. The American dating system. Hey, I'm all for you having a date. If you're about 25 years old, you need to have a date. But I'm talking about the American dating system where you get paired off at about age 14 and you go with this one and this one and this one and this one and then 10 years later, you're going to suddenly marry this one and stick with that one for the rest of your life. It's not happening that way in our culture. Number seven, too much independence too soon. Number eight, wrong influences on a job, listening to the advice of non-Christians, and then wrong values or associations in sports or hobbies. And the last one here, learning to question the truth. Those are just some of the things that are out there. If you didn't get them all down on your study guide, they'll be on the website. Now, there's a lot to consider here, dads, but uh, here's the deal. When you make restrictions in one area, then you're going to have to make some allowances to come up with something even more exciting than what you're pulling over in another area. And some of you have done an excellent job of that. When I was uh, younger, married, I had a young man who wanted a motorcycle. I thought to myself, that could be dangerous. A street bike, you can get yourself killed out on the street, but running around with a motorcycle gang in the middle of the night, uh, no offense, uh, Mr. Murphy, but uh, where we were, uh, that was a danger. And so I compromised for a dirt bike. We lived out in the country. You could ride that dirt bike up through the woods and maybe hit a few trees or something, but you wouldn't be out there in the middle of the night riding it around with a bunch of guys that uh, might not have known what they were doing. I saw Yvonne get on the back of that dirt bike. I saw Yvonne buckle on a life preserver and call in, crawl into a rubber raft, headed downstream into Class 4 rapids on the Klamath River in Northern California with a worried expression on her face. She was buckling in, not because she wanted to, but we wanted to be protective parents in the spiritual area, but not overly protective parents in other areas because children need adventure. And a part of that adventure is taking risk, 
calculated risks. Well, uh, one last reason here, a home with a permissive spirit. A home with a permissive spirit is one in which a young person is free to follow his or her own heart without direction or restraint. If you're a young person here today, I've asked you to mark it in your Bible, but be sure you do. Proverbs 28, 26. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but he who walks wisely will be delivered. Delivered from what? Delivered from foolish decisions, lost opportunities, heartaches, and troubles. But then a young person may be exasperated if he's not getting his way in all those things that he wants. And then he's looking for someone to blame, which may be the parent or the preacher or anyone that's trying to lead him in the right direction. This is a reason it's a good idea to start out early. And sometimes, even when young people are guided in the right direction, they may still go astray. Such was the case of Eli. Eli had religious instruction in his home. He was the priest. His sons were the priests. But there was little training, it seemed, and they turned to their own way. They had no self-discipline. They wanted the best portion of the sacrifice to grill out on the grill. They got into immorality. There were all kinds of problems with these guys. What would be some characteristics of the type of dad who would typically provoke his child to wrath. Well, quickly, we'll run through these characteristics. Quick to take decisive action, could be divisive action. Slow to think. Ahithophel. This was an old man talking. You want to know what he said to Absalom? Give me 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight, and I'll come upon him when he's weary and weak-handed and take him by complete surprise. This is David the warrior that he's going to take by complete surprise. The whole army will run off, and I'll smite only the king, and then I'll bring the army back to you, and everyone will be together in peace. I don't believe that's going to happen, neither did Absalom. Proverbs 14.29, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Ecclesiastes 7.9, be not hasty in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. Proverbs 29.20, do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There's more hope for a fool than for him. That's the reason it's a good idea, dads, to get a little prayer time before we begin the disciplinary session. Number two is similar, quick to judge others by a stricter standard. Jonah had disobeyed God and had been forgiven. But then after he preached, he wanted God to zap the Ninevites because that's what he said God was going to do. What a distorted sense of values. Now where it says, judge not that you be not judged, for in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by the standard of measure, it will be measured to you. We know what that means. That means don't be judging outside your jurisdiction. Uh, Dads, you may have jurisdiction to judge, and the Bible says judge righteous judgment. Harshness, Proverbs 15.1, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. 
We have to do it in the right spirit. Emphasis on justice to the exclusion of mercy. There's Jonah again. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment, James 2.13. I'm not saying we pardon every sin that comes along and just sweep it under the rug. Uh, That would depend on the repentance and attitude of the one who has committed the infraction. That depends on a lot of things. Dads will have to be a good judge of character and of the heart. Motivation of revenge. Now, I'm just talking about getting back at someone for what they've said or done. You do that in the family by pouting, sulking, carrying a grudge, complaining, murmuring, screaming, threatening, or blowing up. And after that comes physical violence. And I think that's the reason corporal punishment has such a bad reputation because many times dads do it in anger. And it's not like I'm saying, I'm going to get revenge. It's just that I need to show this young man what's going on here, but with a wrong spirit. Never take revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Romans 12:19. Foolish reasoning. Here is Samson. He would be the guy. Samson is a guy who loses his temper and goes out and kills a few guys. But imagine the foolishness of his reasoning with Delilah. Three times the Philistines jump him and yet he tells her the truth on the fourth time around. Proverbs 14:17: a man of quick temper acts foolishly and a man of evil devices is hated. On awareness of the anger problem, now that is a problem. Because if you have an angry spirit, but you don't know that you have an angry spirit, how in the world are you going to find out? I have a good suggestion. But first, an angry spirit. Here are some guys, the sons of thunder. You've heard of them, James and John, we've talked about them. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. His face is set like flint. They go to a Samaritan village to check on an inn for the evening meal and maybe where they're going to spend the night. They don't get any positive response. These guys immediately come back to Jesus and say, these guys rejected us. Do you want us to call fire down out of heaven and nuke these guys right here? Well, what did Jesus say? He turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. They didn't know what kind of spirit they had. They had an angry spirit. If I'm unaware of the problem, how do I find out if I have it? Get alone with God for a day and ask Him to speak to your heart through the Scripture. There may be other people who are recognizing some indication of anger, and you might listen to them as well. It results in rebuke and reproof, just like it did from Christ to James and John. Proverbs 19.19, A man of great anger shall bear the penalty. If you rescue him, you will only have to do it again. Well, quickly, the solution. If there's a solution, Dad, Dad's would be to get rid of an angry spirit. Now, we don't have time this morning to 
take up all of that and what that would mean, but if you suspect that's a problem, then uh, get with me, because I've got lots of ideas uh, from one who is um, seeking to put aside that angry spirit a long time ago. But we're given in verse uh, 4 of the Ephesians passage, we're given the solution to provoking children to wrath. And it is to bring them up instead in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The nurture, that would be padea, training. The admonition, that would be instruction. And that would be where we teach them. In padea, it's education. Excuse me, let me... Um, give you this verse that I overlooked and say uh, this. In Galatians 6.1, it says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness. Well, if that one overtaken in a fault is a child, your own son or daughter, it's going to be imperative that a dad is able to get rid of that angry spirit. We're taught a lot in the Bible about controlling the spirit. He that's slow to anger is better than the mighty. He that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh the city. He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. We're warned against being overruled by a wrong spirit. And in Proverbs 16:19, better it is to be of an humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. Now we've come to the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Excuse me, I'm getting a little ahead of myself there. Discipline means education or training. Neuthesia, nous, means mind. Thesis means to put. It means laying down a statement for the mind. So there are times when we are training children, most of the time because they're watching how we do things, and then there are times where we sit everyone down and we give instruction. You've seen this before. Training would be an act and discipline, discipling a young person, not necessarily chastening. Then instruction would be training by word. Discipline would be what is done to or for the child. And instruction would be what is said to the child. Both would be important. And if what I'm saying doesn't match up with the way I'm living, it's not going to be too helpful. The how, the discipline, the why, the instruction. The structure, the rules, the rewards, the punishments, regulations, that's the training part. The internal inspiration comes from the instruction. Actions, motivation for those actions. Behavior, Attitudes toward behavior. Habits, but then what's in the heart. Because when a child leaves home, it's what's in the heart that's going to count. Obey the commandments. Love God and love others. Communication and the rod. Communication and the rod. Now, dads, here's what it's got to be, I believe. In closing, I want to give an account that Chuck Swindoll... Uh, recounts of a, a little nine-year-old boy who got tired of practicing the piano. 
His mother read in the paper that the great Paderewski was coming to town for a concert. She quickly bought tickets, two tickets, one for her and one for the little boy. She got his little tuxedo on him and marched him down to the concert hall, and they found their seats, and she became engaged in conversation with some other ladies. The little boy looked up at the piano on the stage. It was a giant ebony black concert grand Steinway piano. The leather stool was out, ready to go. The lid was up on the keyboard. He cracked his knuckles and said to himself, man, I'd like to play that piano. So when his mother was busy in conversation, he slipped out of his seat and came down and walked up the steps and sat down at the piano. No one noticed, but when he started playing chopsticks, everyone did notice. And some people shouted, stop, and others said, where is that child's mother? But behind stage, as the story goes, Petruski was straightening his tie, and he heard what was happening. So he went out to saw the little boy. He slipped up behind him and improvised a beautiful melody to go along with chopsticks. Now, dads, that's what we've got to do. We've got to study this child and what his abilities are and what God has put in him, and then we've got to improvise a beautiful melody to go along with that. It's not easy, but the Scripture gives us encouragement, and we want to pass along that same encouragement daily, moment by moment, to sons and daughters. Proverbs 15 and verse 4. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's the source of our encouragement. Dads, if we are getting it from the Scriptures through the Holy Spirit, it'll be easy for us to pass it along. Let's pray. Lord, we see a lot of admonition for fathers in the Scripture. We see many passages that tell us things to do that would be impossible to do in the flesh. But we thank You that through the power of Your Spirit, we can do these things, not perfectly, but uh, we can nevertheless do them. Uh, Lord, I pray that uh, you would give us renewed motivation this morning. Perhaps there would be dads here uh, and mothers who have not encouraged sons and daughters in the past in the way that the Scripture indicated. I pray for your forgiveness and direction. I pray, Lord, for sons and daughters here today. pray there would be respect for parents and for your word, as you've told us that children should obey parents and the Lord. And Father, I pray that uh, young people might study the word and might examine what is there and avoid the plague of wrong thinking. Lord, we have a lot of things to pray about today as a congregation. And we ask that you would guide our prayer now as we pray together. And I ask these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.